Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for Elliot's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at Elias.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. It's been a year since nine minutes and 29 seconds changed everything. George Floyd was murdered a year ago today by fired Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. A federal police reform bill bearing his name is being negotiated in Congress. We'll hear about the biggest issue in it that could stop it from reaching the president's desk. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Alliest has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for spending a part of your Tuesday with us. Coming up. We did see an important and substantial shift in the electorate that challenged the status quo. After the murder of George Floyd one year ago, a lot of demands were made to reform policing and the criminal justice system. But what's actually changed? We'll try to answer that just ahead. But first, we've hit a pretty good milestone in our fight against the coronavirus epidemic, actually pandemic. As of yesterday, 50 percent of L.A. County residents over the age of 16 were fully vaccinated. Here to talk about this and all things COVID-19, we have with us Paula Cannon, professor and virologist with the Keck School of Medicine at USC. Professor, welcome back. Hey, good to be back, eh? All right. Not only is uh, L.A. County doing well, but counties all across the state have some of the lowest coronavirus case uh, rates in the nation. Now, what is the statewide positivity rate at this point, and what can we take away from this, uh, uh, Paula, as far as heading into the summer and to live our lives again? <laughs> yes, indeed. You know, it's great news. We, we've hit, I think it's uh, a record low of 0.08% of all the tests that were done last week came back positive, and this is as low or lower than it's been basically, you know, all year. And importantly, it's not because we're testing less, you know, we're still doing, you know, over 100, 150,000 tests per day. Um, it's just, you know, we're really crushing it in California. And, you know, to put the math into perspective, I did a quick calculation. Um, it, it basically means that only one in 20,000 people in California each day are getting COVID. Not, not great if you're that one in 20,000, yeah. you know, but I think for the rest of us, it really reflects what a you know, what a difference um, it is now. And there's really low rates of COVID out in the community. One in 20,000. I remember, uh, Professor, when we were just terrified, you know, number one, being indoors all day long and worried mm -hmm. about hospitals and how they were overflowing and that they couldn't handle capacity. It, it just, it does, I, I, yeah, I guess. Different the, world. Yeah, the whole point <laughs> was to get to where we are now. But man, when I just think back and now think to where we are now, it is... Uh, sobering and and joyful at the same yeah. time. Um, I, I noted that in LA County, 50% of residents 16 and over are fully vaccinated. And just looking statewide, how much is that positivity rate uh, a product of how many are vaccinated versus uh, natural immunity since uh, so many people had it this winter? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. You know, certainly this low rate of infection and the case positivity rates, is it's definitely a combination of the two. It's the great vaccination effort we've got, but we also got a bump from our pretty bad you know, prior infections, you know, we know at least 12% of LA County residents have had COVID and have been tested for it. And there are estimates that, you know, potentially up to 30% of LA County residents may have had it. But you combine that bad number with the very good number about our strong vaccination rates. And, you know, you can see that the math is, is on our side. 
You know, I have a, a very close family member who got uh, COVID-19 a, a few months ago and be- mm-hmm. and recovered and everything's fine. Um, but because of that, this person will not uh, get the vaccine, at least not yet. I don't know what they're waiting for. <laughs> I've had uh, discussions with this person uh, many, many times about this. But for those who have COVID-19 antibodies still, do we know generally how long that lasts? Yeah. So, um, so first of all, you know, antibodies do go down naturally. You know, they kind of peak a couple of weeks after you get a vaccine or have a natural infection, and then they slowly drop down over time. And that's completely normal. It happens with all vaccines and infections. And I think, you know, most people are probably familiar with the concept that for some vaccines, like the uh, the tetanus, for example, you need to get a booster shot. Yeah. Um, we don't really know yet what the situation is going to be with COVID. You know, we're still measuring and monitoring things like antibody levels in people and gathering that information. But until or unless vaccinated people start to get what we call breakthrough infections, and that's happening at the you know higher levels than the currently incredibly rare cases that we see, Until we see that, we won't know that the vaccine-induced immunity or the natural immunity is waning and getting below a protective level. So still get the vaccine, right? I mean, I'm having this discussion with this person with love. I'm doing it with love, but uh, sometimes I get frustrated. Yeah, I mean, definitely getting a vaccine, even if you've been infected, it's going to give a boost to your natural immunity. It's like you, you know, you're boosting yourself. Um, And, you know, especially now when there's no shortage of vaccines, I would strongly recommend that people who know they've had COVID go and get vaccinated as well. All right. Now, though, things are looking very much up when it comes to the pandemic. There's still concern over uh, many virus variants now present in L.A. Uh, Professor, can you remind us what strains have been detected here and how much of a risk they pose? Oh, sure. It's like the M&Ms of viruses, isn't it, in L.A.? Yeah. So, you know, we've seen some really big shifts. I I don't know if you remember, a couple of months ago, we were talking about um, a homegrown Californian variant that was really um, prevalent. But that's now been surpassed by the so-called UK variants. My apologies. It's like another British invasion. Um, That's (laughs) the dominant strain right now. And then we're also still detecting steady but pretty low levels of other so-called variants of concern, viruses that originated in Brazil and South Africa. And, you know, it's concerning because they are more infectious. And in a way, we're fighting a different epidemic than we were at the start of 2020, basically a more infectious enemy. But, you know, things have changed. We've got the vaccines and we also know how to protect ourselves with, you know, masks and social distancing. So, To some extent, it doesn't matter how infectious these variants are. There's very good data that both all of the vaccines and these behaviors will will completely stop them. And A, you know what I say to people? I say, Mm. okay, well, it's like if somebody's going to throw a drink at you at a party and, you know, you'd you'd prefer to be thrown, you know, have water thrown at you rather than red wine. But frankly, (laughs) if you're standing far enough away or, you know, you've got an umbrella, it actually doesn't matter what's in the glass. It's really not going to ruin your clothes. On the wine, if I position my mouth in just the right (laughs) spot, the wine might just go, no, but that's someone else's drink. So forget (laughs) about that. We're talking to Paula Cannon, virologist with USC's Keck School of Medicine. Now, Moderna uh, has some pretty promising news about its vaccine for kids as young as uh, the age of 12. What's the latest? Yeah, I was just listening to that on the news bulletin before we came on. So it looks great. You know, they did a study of nearly 4,000 kids ages 12 to 17, and they basically saw the exact same uh, signs of immune protection in the kids as we've seen in adults, the same levels of antibodies. And importantly, none of the vaccinated kids in their trial um, got COVID. So, you know, this is important because kids do get COVID. And I think it's about 14% of the total cases we've seen in the United States are in children under 18. So it's really important that we have vaccine options for them. So that's a 100% number that we're talking about then. It is, but you know, it's it, the math gets tricky. Gosh, okay. I'm always talking about math on this show because, <laughs> you know, it's there were very few cases yeah. overall. I think there were only four cases in the non-vaccinated group, which reflects the fact that there's just less COVID going around at the moment. So it's it's a nice problem to have when you're doing clinical trials. Yeah, when I saw the headlines on this uh, on television, it's at 100%, and I had to turn the volume <laughs> up. I was like, what, 100%, we keep hearing 90, you know, over the last few months, but 100% certainly got uh, everyone's attention. So what yeah. might the effect be then uh, if and when this becomes available to younger teens in addition to the Pfizer vaccine? Yeah, well, I think it's good news because it just adds to the supplies and the options. And um, hopefully we're going to see a rush. We're going to see a great desire for people to get their kids vaccinated, especially before heading back to school in person in the fall. And and just a note to parents, you know, fully vaccinated happens two weeks after the second dose if you get, you know, Moderna or Pfizer 
So the lead time you need to be thinking about is about six weeks. So if you've got a child in this age group, you, you need to think about getting this started before, you know, certainly before July the 4th. Yeah, that's coming up. That's uh, Those dates are coming up. Now, for younger children, I understand a, a vaccine may be ready by the end of the year or early next. Is the expectation that the next vaccine will be for ages 2 to 12 or might it be more maybe incremental, say 8 to 11 first? Yeah, I think, um, you know, different vaccine types may come out with slightly different age groups initially, because it just depends on who they've got in their trials and how quickly they can get data from the trials. You know, the current trials have got, uh, you know, babies as young as six months old in them. But I I think it's likely, as as you were suggesting, that the next group we see will be something like, say, all the school age kids, you know, five to 11 year olds. And then, uh, you know, by before the end of the year and then later after that, maybe go down to the toddlers and the infants. And it may be that, you know, one vaccine gets there quicker than the others. So, you know, like we have at the moment where Pfizer is currently approved for the, you know, 12 to 17 year olds and Moderna, it looks like they'll probably get approved pretty quickly as well now. Does the logic follow that if human beings are smaller, like kids, that the doses probably have to change? Um, yeah. And, you know, they may not so much as have to change, but can change. And that yeah, makes okay. it kind of cheaper and more economical. You know, and again, the current clinical trials are looking at different doses, like half doses for younger kids and even down to a quarter dose of what you would give adults and the babies. And this complicates things because then it makes the clinical means that the clinical trials have to include different variables, different doses. So that can sometimes make it take longer. Um but, you know, definitely there, there is, and I think especially for the vaccines that we know have side effects, it might be nice if we can really reduce the dose in our smaller um, individuals. You mentioned earlier about uh, going back to school and parents uh, trying to plan out or, or project out when and if they give their kids the vaccine. Um, when it comes to schools being fully reopened, there seems to be trepidation because, for one, younger kids aren't vaccinated. Now, you know, Wondering if all adults on campus and a significant number of older kids are vaccinated, what's the real risk factor there if those under 12 are not vaccinated? Yeah. And I think, you know, I get it. This is definitely an area of concern to parents and and perhaps especially to those people who themselves, you know, embraced getting vaccinated, love the freedom from anxiety that it has given them. They want that security also for their younger children. Um, and I think I would the things to consider is that risk is based on two things. Your, person, your own personal vaccination status, sure, but just as significantly, and especially for schools, it's the overall levels in the community. So if hardly anyone has COVID, you know, due to the factors we've just talked about, including the great response of adults in California to getting vaccinated, then the chances of COVID exposure in schools is also um, very low. And, you know, it may be that schools, you know, um, put in place still doing sort of random testing so that they can identify and squash any outbreaks that might happen. But I think, you know, when you put all these things together, a school district with high levels of vaccinated teachers and staff and older kids, lower levels in the communities we're seeing right now, then I I think it represents a very low risk even to a preteen unvaccinated child. I know LA has had some success with offering incentives to get uh, folks vaccinated and and reported actually a bump in vaccinations due to a Lakers uh, season ticket giveaway. Mm -hmm. Um, Is this kind of effort something that maybe cities and counties should keep up and keep doing maybe in order to boost immunity? I think so, because it works, doesn't it? I was looking at the numbers. It's like, yeah, 30% increase in in LA, uh, the LA county sites because of this. And you know, great. And thank you Lakers, although I'm sure they're self-interested. They want vaccinated people at their games. And, um, you know, I, I think probably the, the winner right now is Ohio. You know, their governor has a $1 million lottery and free yeah. college scholarships to people. So I think that's a, that's a great idea. Um, another one that I thought was particularly creative is um, the Six Flags just outside Chicago. They're offering free entry to anybody who gets vaccinated and they have the vaccination clinic in the parking lot. So, you know, you want to go to Six Flags, you just stop off and get vaccinated on the way. Again, just a great incentive and not taking anything out of, you know, people's day. So I, I'm, I'm all in favor of these. If it helps, right? If it helps getting to mm-hmm. uh, community immunity, I guess uh, it all uh, seems to work. Now, as more and more people get vaccinated, what happens to all that testing? Does it become unnecessary, you think, uh, at some point? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely in a, new, in a new phase, aren't we? You know, now, you know, testing was always the thing that was helping us to yeah. control the epidemic. And now it's not. Now it's now it's vaccines. And testing is expensive and it's disruptive, you know, especially because, you know, we have these crazy sensitive tests that can even, you know, pick up a positive if you, frankly, are probably, you know, having an asymptomatic 
infection that is of no consequence to you and you probably can't infect other people. If you remember, hey, this is what I think happened with the Yankees a, a couple of weeks ago when a lot yeah, of their players tested cases, positive. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think we're going to move to more sort of targeted testing. Um, you know, I'm at a university and I think what we'll probably do is only require people who are not vaccinated to get tested going forward. Um, mm. You know, there's an incentive to get vaccinated. Um, so I, I think we're going to start seeing less tax, less less testing, definitely. So let me put this scenario in front of you, uh, Professor. So say someone has is fully vaccinated, and mm -hmm. say the closer we get to September and October, the winter months, say they get uh, you know the sniffles or they're, they're feeling you know a little sick or they got the a cold mm -hmm. or something like that. Should they say, okay, I should maybe go get tested? I think so. Yeah, and you know one of the one of the other nice things is we're going to have more and more kind of like. Um, you know, you can go into CVS and buy like a kit where you can just test yourself yeah. at home. You know, they're not as sensitive, but it would give you peace of mind. So I, I think that's a good kind of, you know, public health hygiene thing to do. And I'm going to I'm going to buy some and stick them in the medicine cabinet. And yeah, <laughs> the first time anybody sniffles or Why gets, not, right? a, a, you know, yeah, a temperature, I'll be like, let's just rule out COVID. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Ruling that out. That's absolutely uh, right. Uh, now, uh, one more thing, uh, Professor. Still a, a number of people suffering effects of COVID-19 long after they caught it. Uh, they're called the uh, so-called long haulers. Um, are we any closer to understanding why some people have lingering symptoms while others just bounce back quite easily? Yeah, not really. But it's it's actually a surprisingly high number of people whose symptoms persevere or they develop new symptoms, the so-called long um, COVID after the infection, it's real and it's impacting them. Um, and I think, you know, it, it sounds like some of these things um, may be similar to other what we call post-viral syndromes, such as chronic fatigue syndrome. And so, you know, although we don't fully understand what's happening, um, a great silver lining of this pandemic would be if the, you know, sadly large cohort of people expected to be dealing with long COVID can um, spur research and knowledge so that we can, you know, really come up with effective therapies against post-viral syndromes in, in general. But meanwhile, it's yet another reason yeah. why you want to avoid COVID if at all possible, and it really stresses the value of vaccinations. That's Paula Cannon, virologist with USC's Keck School of Medicine. Thank you very much. You're welcome, eh? All right, it's been a year since George Floyd was murdered. We'll hear how far his legacy has advanced action on police reform in California by previewing a KPCC special show tonight. That's coming up next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. As you've likely heard throughout the day, today marks one year since George Floyd was murdered by former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. His tragic death, captured on video, shocked the nation, letting loose a wave of protests and calls for police reform and accountability across the country. Tonight at 7 o'clock, as part of a special statewide broadcast, KPCC looks at the efforts to reform policing in California over the past year and also at the long road ahead to reaching racial justice. It's called How George Floyd Changed California, and it's hosted by early All Things Considered host and former Take-Two producer Austin Cross. Hey, Austin. Hey. Now, nobody can and nobody should forget the protests and calls for justice that we saw here after George Floyd's murder. One year later, Austin, one year later, has much changed here? 
Like most things, A, it really depends on how you define the word change. On the national stage, there were at least two attempts last year at passing police reforms in Congress. There was one that L.A. Congresswoman Karen Bass put forward, and then there was one from South Carolina's Tim Scott. There was a lot of back and forth, and ultimately, you know, nothing was done. And a lot of people hoped state lawmakers here would have much better luck. But you might recall that during last year's session, most of the ambitious bills that were proposed never even made it to the governor's desk. And that's kind of why we're doing the statewide special featuring reporters from public radio stations across California, because most of the changes to things like police budgets has happened so far on a local level. I know we'll hear from Frank Stoltz in just a bit on reforms happening in L.A., and we'll also get into those details here tonight. I understand State Senator Stephen Bradford from Gardena is going to join you as well. He's been pushing pretty hard for a bill aimed at limiting some of the legal protections that police have enjoyed for decades. You're going to ask him about it. Oh, yeah. It's called Senate Bill 2 or the Kenneth Ross. Junior Police Decertification Act of 2021, and it was named after a black man who was killed by an officer in his district. This is the second go-round for this bill because it didn't really make it last session. And like you said, it would aim to curb a program called Qualified Immunity, which has protected police from civil suits in federal courts. Bradford's bill would essentially put that ball into state court so that people who had their rights violated by police could take their grievances to state court, though I know that there have been a lot of changes since it got into the committees. I'll also add that the bill would empower the state to decertify police and prevent them from working in law enforcement again. It's controversial, so I'll ask him how he's feeling about it. And finally, Austin, I understand there's going to be an opportunity for listeners to weigh in. Oh, yeah. We're going to open the phones Larry Mandel style. Sweet. Oh, yeah. We're going to ask listeners across California how we keep the racial justice momentum going. I'm sure we can all think of people who are active over the past year, maybe even people that we never saw do anything that looked like activism before. But... With California opening back up, there's going to be a lot more to keep people busy. So we want to hear how people plan to build on the progress that's been made over the past year. One more last thing, Austin. I see that you have a new piece out on LAist, uh, just in time for the anniversary of Floyd's death. Uh, what's it about? I do. And yeah, it actually encapsulates a lot of what we've talked about here. Namely, I explore some of the social changes and look at some of the hurdles ahead for the racial justice movement. And the TLDR, Too Long Didn't Read, is that the future is a story that needs to be written by all of us. And it's really up to us to decide where things go from here. That's KPCC's Austin Cross. He's hosting the one-hour special, How George Floyd Changed California. That's tonight at 7 on KPCC, also on kpcc.org or on your smart speaker. Austin, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. Hundreds of thousands of people filled L.A. streets last summer after George Floyd's murder demanding big changes in policing. So a look at what's actually changed here. We've got KPCC's Frank Stoltz. One of the most recognizable names in the police reform movement is Melina Abdullah, who heads the L.A. chapter of Black Lives Matter. We're in a grassy area of Pan Pacific Park, the exact spot where we had our first protest after the murder of George Floyd. Thousands of people showed up that day, the group's biggest rally ever. The organic solidarity that's emerged is really inspiring. And sometimes thrilling for Abdullah, who is a big jazz fan. I never knew Anita Baker cared about Black Lives Matter, but she does, and it made me so happy because I'm a huge Anita Baker fan, right? She says she'd love to find a way to connect with Lakers star LeBron James, who also has become an outspoken critic of police brutality. That's just another sign that the push for police reform in L.A. has moved front and center over the past year. But what's really changed? A lot. Starting at the ballot box. In the two weeks following Floyd's murder, 5,000 new donors flocked to the campaign of then-DA candidate George Gascon. His promise to review hundreds of past police shootings helped him beat incumbent Jackie Lacey, who was heavily supported by police unions. Melanie Ochoa is director of police practices at the ACLU of Southern California. We did see an important and substantial shift in the electorate that challenged the status quo. Voters also elected County Supervisor Holly Mitchell, a champion of police reform, and they approved Measure J. 
That historic law requires the county to spend at least 10% of its discretionary money on social programs designed to keep people out of jail. In addition, the L.A. Unified School District slashed its police budget by one-third, and the city cut its funding for the LAPD by $150 million. The department stopped hiring, and its ranks fell by about 500 officers. Then, this year, partly in response to rising crime, Mayor Eric Garcetti and the city council bumped the department's budget back up by about $50 million. That will allow the LAPD to add back another 250 officers. All of this is far from the complete defunding that Black Lives Matter wants, but the budget cut was still unprecedented, according to Rafe Sunshine, who teaches political science at Cal State LA. I think police reform now has become turbocharged. I don't think anybody could possibly have imagined that so much would be on the table right now. Among the hottest items on the table, LAPD involvement in traffic enforcement. I'm standing at the corner of Vermont and 82nd Street in South LA. For years, black drivers here have been much more likely to be stopped and questioned by police than people of other races. In some cases, traffic stops for minor violations have led to the use of force. Leslie Cooper Johnson of the Community Coalition says after Floyd's death, officials were suddenly more open to talking about the issue. In every meeting that we went into, we started with, we understand the reason that we're here is because of this murder. It's a terrible reality to grapple with. In February, the city council approved a study to look at removing LAPD officers from traffic enforcement. But Johnson and other reformers were frustrated when the city said it would take a year to hire the consultant for the study. When we heard that, it was a gut punch. It's difficult to keep people engaged over such a long lull. Still, the movement has attracted a whole new wave of activists who've learned how to lobby and read Byzantine police budgets. The city council has also voted to develop a program that sends social workers instead of cops to nonviolent mental health and substance abuse calls. The city expects to launch that program by fall or winter. The union that represents rank-and-file LAPD officers supports that effort, but it opposes removing police from traffic enforcement, and it adamantly opposed the $150 million cut to the department's budget. We said, it's a problem, it's going to be a problem. Tom Segau is the police union spokesman. We've seen since that time an explosion in shootings. There's actually no evidence linking the budget cuts to the rise in shootings. In fact, there was a surge in shootings all over the country during the pandemic. The LAPD union and the union that represents L.A. sheriff's deputies also fought police reforms in Sacramento. They helped defeat a number of bills, including one that would have ensured that cops who get fired for serious misconduct can't get hired at another department. At the L.A. Sheriff's Department, there have been far fewer changes over the past year. There's been no discussion of removing deputies from traffic stops or reducing the budget, says the ACLU's Melanie Ochoa. The path forward is a lot more clear on the city side than it is on the county side. One reason for that is the LAPD chief reports to the mayor, but the elected sheriff reports to no one. The Board of Supervisors did successfully pressure Sheriff Alex Villanueva to follow state law and release the names of deputies who have shot people. Meantime, Villanueva has been dismissive of reform efforts in general. On the Gil Contreras podcast earlier this month, he mocked the movement's language. Always very glowing terms, reimagining, reinvesting, all these very nice, warm and fuzzy, rainbows and puppies type things. You know, it's real simple. you got more crime, more crooks, and less cops. What could go wrong? Reformers say it's disappointing that a year after the murder of George Floyd, law enforcement leaders like Villanueva failed to appreciate the need for change. Covering criminal justice, I'm Frank Stoltz. It's been a year since nine minutes and 29 seconds changed everything. George Floyd was murdered a year ago today by fired Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who kneeled on his neck and is now waiting to hear what his sentence will be. But many are also waiting to see and hear what the legacy of those nine minutes and 29 seconds will be when it comes to police reform. 
There's a federal police reform bill bearing his name now being negotiated in Congress. We'll hear about the biggest issue in it that could stop it from reaching the president's desk. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, I'm A. Martinez. We continue our conversation on police reform one year after the murder of George Floyd with a discussion on qualified immunity. Now, you heard Austin Cross bring it up earlier when we spoke. Qualified immunity requires anyone suing a police officer for misconduct to prove the officer knowingly violated their constitutional rights. And it sets a very high bar for that proof. Critics of qualified immunity say it effectively shields police officers from accountability. That's why some states and federal lawmakers are trying to scale it back or just get rid of it altogether. But how much effect would doing away with it have? Well, here to talk about this is Jody David Armour, Roy P. Kroc, a professor at the USC Gould School of Law. Jody, welcome back. Great to be with you, eh? All right. Now, this idea of qualified immunity was uh, put on the books back in 1960s or in the 60s, I should say. Uh, why? What's the history there? Well, yeah, it uh, goes back to uh, really post-Civil War. Uh, a Right afterward, we the Congress got together, enacted Section 1983. It was, the Ku, it was called also the Ku Klux Klan Act because it was meant to give Black citizens especially rights against state officials, state actors, who often stood by and let Ku Klux Klan violence be inflicted on black communities. And so they gave blacks a way to go to court and seek financial compensation, financial redress for the failure of the state actors to protect their constitutional rights against the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, then they used that all the way until the mid 60s. Mm -hmm. It was used through the civil rights movement to vindicate black rights until the Supreme Court started to limit your, your ability to sue state actors who violate your constitutional rights. And they move from a standard of kind of strict liability, just anytime someone violates your rights, you can you can bring an action irrespective of their mental state to one of, you know, if the officer made a good faith mistake, we'll excuse the constitutional violation. That was the early part. If it's, if it's reasonable and honest, then they expanded the immunity a lot more a and started saying, unless you have a case that is just like an earlier case in which a court said that that was a violation of a constitutional right. Unless your case looks exactly like that case or nearly exactly like it, the officer enjoys qualified wow. immunity and you cannot recover from so it. So layers keep getting laid upon this to protect. Yes, you know. it's, it's, it's evolved it's a, and it, it's grown accretions over time until now. It's where a lot of people, both lawmakers and others, call it almost a, a kind of immunity almost a, a simple shield uh, against accountability for officers who violate citizens' constitutional rights. Because I was going to you know, ask you next, uh, Jody, like how does qualified immunity typically play out in practice, considering what we just discussed? Well, yeah, it happens at the trial court level. As you bring your uh, case against a police officer who, for example, I'll give you one concrete case. Uh, a, a prison official went through a uh, 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 jail cell and he squirted mace at a prisoner for no reason because he was sitting in his cell. He didn't like the way he looked. Or another police officer shot at a dog that was among a, a group of kids and hit a kid, even though the dog was not posing any threat. In both cases, officers, both the corrections officer and the police officer got the benefit of qualified immunity because the trial court judge said, I don't see any other case in which an officer, a, a, a corrections officer sprayed mace into a prisoner's face. So I, he gets qualified immunity there. And another judge said, I don't see any other case where an officer shot recklessly into a crowd of children to shoot an, an, an innocuous dog 
I don't see any case just like that. So the officer gets the benefit of qualified immunity. So that's how it plays out in practice. I, I. It might be a silly question to ask you next, Jody. But OK, so as we mentioned, it, it's it's central to some of the reform legislation being worked out of the federal level. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act uh, being what's uh, drafted by uh, California Congressman, uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass. Why is it so essential then to, that for some that this be done away with? I mean, considering everything you just mentioned, it seems like it's very easy to make that connection, but why is it for some something that's crucial? Well, some think that you need to give officers this added elbow room, this added protection so that they don't second guess themselves, so that they don't hesitate in, a, in an urgent moment um, for fear of some kind of liability, you know, that they might lose their assets because these are all civil actions. This uh, doesn't apply to criminal, only civil actions for money damages that they might fear civil liability. But recent studies have shown a, that over 99, well over 99% of officers have never had to pay a penny for any judgments against them, any civil action, any money damages that have been recovered for their misconduct. The money has always gotten from insurance funds of some kind. So the officers aren't really facing any personal threat to their liability, or rather to their to their well-being. Um, and it's, it's it now, I think it's mainly taken on a symbolic significance for many people. Many people hang on to qualified immunity as a way of protecting officers from what they consider to be over-aggressive attempts to hold them accountable. And so this gives them extra le- uh, uh, elbow room but you can see that a lot of uh, a lot of people are arguing that we should go the other way. Now, a year after George Floyd's death, uh, despite pledges to get something done, a police reform bill is uh, still not sitting on President Biden's desk. How much do you think, Jody, that uh, the disagreement over qualified immunity is holding things up right now? Yeah, it, it seems to be a, an important kind of linchpin for some. You know, uh, initially conservatives were... Uh, saying they weren't going to support it, people like Tim Scott and others. But now they said they may be able to come back to the table, ready to come back to the table if we can find ways not to hold officers personally liable, but maybe their departments and shift the attention from, you know, the individual to somehow the institution. And so there might be some room for some compromise here. Um, but it's, it's a real, I think, for many symbolic matter, you know, the idea that officers should be held responsible for their you know, um, a negligence or even recklessness, some worry will lead them to, you know, to un- unwarranted liability. Well, let me ask you this then, because so after George Floyd was murdered, it seemed like ending qualified immunity or at least, you know, really scaling it down was a bipartisan thing. And it seems like that is no longer the case. What do you think happened to that unity that we heard uh, last year? Yeah, it is interesting because this is a story, uh, A, that both sides, but what left and right have been able to agree on. I hear people who are, uh, you know, kind of libertarian and conservatives yeah. who are wary about, you know, state actors and over-concentrated state power. They don't like the idea of state actors enjoying a kind of, you know, carte blanche, a kind of almost immunity shield from, you know, responsibility for violating the rights of citizens. So they care about that, that stuff, civil liberties very seriously. And then you have a lot of people on the left, Black Lives Matter and others, and see racial justice dimensions to these kinds of uh, cases. The fact that you're not incentivizing police departments to root out the bad apples by allowing them not to even be held liable in the first place. So you, it looked like there was this room for, you know, bipartisan, you know, um, agreement on this. A, eh? But I think maybe some of that symbolic stuff. Is what, you know, some people have, kind of have a knee-jerk reaction against any doctrine that might hold police officers more accountable, even if they don't fully understand the doctrine. You know, it's like critical race studies. What does it even mean anymore? Now it's become kind of an empty label, a signifier, right? And I think mm-hmm. for some people, um, qualified immunity is such a signifier. Let me ask you this. If, if, if qualified immunity is off of this, is it still worth moving forward with this uh, in, in Congress? Yeah, you know, uh, even with qualified immunity, even if uh, there was a complete repeal of qualified immunity, uh, a that it, it, ne- it wouldn't necessarily have addressed the deep-rooted problems okay. that activists have been getting at in the streets over the summer, right? Because there are a lot of cities like uh, uh, Chicago that has hundreds of millions of dollars in liability that they paid out to police officers, and they haven't reformed their police practices very much in spite of those 
huge awards and, and, and settlements, right? So it's not clear that just removing qualified immunity is suddenly going to get police departments to start acting in, a, in what many consider a more responsible way. But it, it is some reform change. This, this is always a, a reform bill, not a transformational bill, but reform. And so it's still going to talk about body cameras and, and some things that people are going to find useful, but it's still not getting at the kind of deeper going issue of unbundling the police and, and reimagining safety that people were asking for over the summer in the streets. Is transformational change more likely to happen on the state level as opposed to the federal level? Yeah, that's what we've seen certainly here in L.A. Uh, you know, uh, we saw transformational, what I can, would consider transformational change after the summer's grassroots activism. Voters in L.A. went to the ballot box and ousted a traditional law and order DA, Jackie Lacey, first black woman DA in L.A. County and replaced her with a, a person who ran on a progressive prosecutor platform, George Gascon. And then they also um, voted for Measure J which was essentially a kind of defund the police uh, measure, right? Uh, unbundle them, you know, it commits 10% of the county's unrestricted funds. That's up to a billion dollars a year uh, to incarceration and police alternatives. So yes, it really has gotten the attention of many voters, uh, the, the, this whole uh, set of issues and, and whatever happens with qualified immunity, I think this issue is going to be uh, a one on our radar for a while to come. But for the soul of this nation, Jody, for it to happen on the federal level, is that necessary for, for the soul of this nation and for this nation's perception in the world to, to be different? Yeah, it, it would certainly be a, a, an important symbolic, uh, uh, you know, um, affirmation that we all, no matter what meridian, no matter what latitude in this nation, we all are committed to a certain kind of equality and equal justice for all. And um, at the, at, for that to come from the federal level certainly would be great. We'll have to see if we can get it. That's Jody Armour, Roy P. Crocker, professor of law at USC. Jody, as always, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, A. All right. You know, stuff has been opening up in L.A. County all over the city. You see Dodger Stadium is going to be at full capacity in mid-June. Well, something else opened up today, and L.A. Treasure will tell you all about it and why they've been having visitors, tiny ones, for a long time now. We'll ask uh, what they did to fix it. Coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Martinez. All right, good news today for art lovers and museum goers alike. The Getty Center in Brentwood has officially reopened its doors to the public. Starting today, folks can head to the museum and the gardens that overlook the 405 freeway. Now, the center will be operating at limited capacity, and free advanced reservations are required. Here to talk about the reopening, the year that was, and what lies ahead is Timothy Potts, director of the J. Paul Getty Museum. Timothy, welcome to Take Two. Thanks very much, Jay. Nice to be with you. All right. First up, what can visitors expect upon arrival at the center? What will the museum experience be like right off the bat? Um, it will be a little different. Um, the same old process to actually get your booking, go online, um, get a ticket for a time ticket. And we are um, uh, issuing tickets for at the moment about a third of what would have been our normal attendance uh, over a year ago, but we'll be ramping that up almost day by day as we make sure that everything's working the way we want it to be working. Um, so we'll get back to normal levels, you know, in the days and weeks ahead. Um, the visit to the museum will be different in that it's a prescribed um, route through the galleries, um, but it will take you through the um, most interesting new things we have. Oh. Uh, new acquisitions on display. We have obviously some new exhibitions as well, um, as well as, of course, the permanent collection that everyone knows and loves. Um, so lots to be seen, but we will uh, also be asking visitors to wear their masks for now yeah. um, and to maintain the usual uh, social distancing. So there are sort of things we're kind of used to over the last year, but are 
finding, uh, hoping will be beyond in not in not too distant future. But for now, um, those are the main differences between a visit today and a visit let's say 15 months ago. When do you think the uh, the route thing, the prescribed route thing, how long do you think that'll last? Because I got to admit, one of the great things about going to a museum is that, okay, you see something, Timothy, and then you move on to something else, but then something strikes you and, and you want to go back to that thing you saw maybe five minutes ago or in the next, in the room, uh, you know, before that. How long do you think this will last where people can maybe go back and revisit something that they just saw 10 seconds ago? Look, I agree entirely, and um, that that's what we want people to be able to do because that is the way, obviously, to enjoy a museum. And we all, um, you know, that's that's no <laughs> no, no discussion. Um, it's just a matter of being sure that we that the protocols are working, and that there aren't bottlenecks or other things at certain points. And look, we we opened the villa about a month ago, and that has been working. And oh, we're okay. ramping up, as I say, the attendance. We're pretty much back to normal level attendances at the at the villa in only a few weeks. I would I would imagine it'll be the same with the centre that we'll be back to um, uh, normal levels of attendance. And for that, of course, we'll want all the galleries open, not just the ones on this route. So you know, I'm going to say it's it's it's. I'm hoping it'll be a couple of weeks, maybe a little longer, maybe a little shorter. But we do rather than setting a date. Um, we want to just be sure that people are safe, that the protocols are working and that everyone feels safe. So um, we, we don't want to sort of set a date in advance, but it'll be as soon as we possibly can, because that's the experience we all want our visitors to have. Because, Timothy, I might linger on something. If I know that I can't go back to it, I might linger at a spot for a while <laughs> just to yeah. take it all in. Sure, sure. Now, OK, what will be open uh, at the Getty and what will still remain closed? Um, in terms of the galleries, it's the permanent collection galleries on the plaza level, not the upper level of um, the second floor galleries, except for um, the impression, the, the 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 West Pavilion, which has the photographs, um, and the on the upper level, the impressionists. So um, you won't what you basically won't be seeing are the old master collections of um, paintings of the early paintings and sculptures. Um, on the upper level. But as I say, as soon as we, as we bring in more people per day, we'll also want more spaces for them to move through so that we're not having, you know, too much density of people in one gallery at a time. So um, we'll need to, you know, coordinate those two aspects, the higher numbers of people on site, more galleries open, and just be sure that the flows are working. And as soon as we can get back to free and open um, uh, visits where people go, you know, in whichever direction they want to. Uh, that's obviously where we want to be as soon as we possibly can. We just want to be serious about making sure that we're doing it safely. Now, Timothy, I, I, one thing I, I read about in the LA Times was that uh, the Gettys had visitors, creepy, crawly visitors, uh, all, all year. Um, there were moths. Um, for, where do the moths come from, and, and what threat do they, did they pose to the art? And, and, and have you gotten rid of them? Yeah, yeah. That's let me start by saying yes. We've gotten rid of all the um, the things that might have been an issue. Um, we really were taking the opportunity. Um, this was one of the few, but there were some good things that came out of the opportunity that being closed presented to us. So one of them was we did a really deep clean um, in a number of the galleries, particularly focusing on galleries that have. Um, organic materials, so woods and fabrics and things like that, which, you know, animals can, other animals that we wouldn't want can feed on. And it's as much as anything, and it's also ha making sure that in all the nooks and crannies where, you know, dust and things will accumulate, that also the pests can um, can be. So it was um, preventative. Uh, you know, we did have, obviously, there just are going to be occasional moths and things <laughs> that's we're used to, yeah. but we wanted to make sure that we were minimizing any danger of um, that becoming a problem in the future. So it was a it was a campaign over some months and, you know, whole beds and large pieces of furniture had to be put into freezing units where, wow. you know, we would be able to, you know, uh, eradicate anything that was that you couldn't see and couldn't deal with in other means. So it's a highly scientific process of, um, of as I say, a very deep yeah. clean and, and, and making sure nothing that shouldn't be there 
was there. Well, hopefully they left a donation on their way out of the Getty there. <laughs> now, last year, um, Timothy, like many other organizations, the Getty went through a bit of a racial, racial reckoning of its own and in January released its Diversity, Equity, Accessibility, and Inclusion Plan. It stated goals to, quote, uh, put in place anti-racist structures and systems that will lead to enduring change. Timothy, for you and your team, what does that mean in practice? For the, uh, well, yes. Um, uh, first thing I should say is that the different, there was a five major goals in the plan and various um, areas of the Getty, you know, like our HR department or our, and in our case, the museum were assigned or took on um, bits of that program. So what the museum is focusing on is the question of how do we diversify the, not just, um, well, starting with the collections, how do we diversify the, the, the character of the collection, which of course being mostly, mostly European art mm-hmm. is by default mostly produced by white male European artists mm-hmm. of various kinds and different periods. Uh, how can we represent women artists? Because there were really important women artists and we've been able recently to acquire work, a painting by Artemisia Gentileschi, who is the most important woman artist, not only of the 17th century, but probably of the whole old master period. Um, so it's a question of what we collect, but even I think more importantly, it's about the narratives we bring to the collection, our understanding of it, and the different perspectives and voices um, that we bring into play. You know, we are trained art historians, so our instincts have been in the past to talk about the works in art historical terms. Who's the artist? Who are they influenced by? Why is their work differently, Hmm. different and important in interesting ways from what went before it and what was their legacy? So that's what most of our typical labels of wall text and so on are focused on. And we're not going to not do that, but we also want to bring in people from other perspectives, whether it's conservation or social history or political history, um, and understand, you know, the dynamics of the cultures that produced these works, which often were privileging, you know, uh, male artists, and um, uh, there's very little input from people of color. Um, but the subject matter sometimes does represent these other cultures and other peoples and marginalized groups. And we're wanting to tease out those um, issues that reflect not only on the paintings and our understanding or the sculptures, but also the cultures that yeah. produce them. So and big changes. It's the absences, yeah. it's the things you don't see. Right. And why don't you see them? So there's, you know, and we we're not all equipped. We're not the only ones equipped to do that. Right. So we're trying to bring in lots of so other big people. big changes to come at the uh, J. Paul Getty Museum. That's Timothy Potts, director. Timothy, thank you very much. Um, take two is back tomorrow at two. Marketplace is coming up next. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.